So I know you're going to be sad to hear this, but this morning we conclude our sermon series, Zombie. Say, aw. And some of you who are visiting with us might wonder, why in the world would a preacher choose Zombie as the title for a sermon series? Are you just trying to play off this current cultural fascination with zombies? Because you've got to admit, every time you turn around, you're tripping over a zombie around here, aren't you? Is that it? Are we just trying to be clever? Well, of course that's true. Yes. Yeah, I want to be cool. Of course I want to be cool. But I also believe that this idea of zombie actually makes a very important point, a very important spiritual point for us in this year of good news about the power of sin in our life. Sin, which is the disobedience to God, placing ourselves on the throne of God uh, instead of Him, living our own way. It's not just unfortunate. It's not just naughty. Sin is destructive. Sin is deadly. And if we don't get that, we will not understand how good the good news really is. So that's why we started here. I want us to understand how deadly sin really is. And we're going to see a good example of it this morning. A little boy was brought into an emergency room some time back. He had two broken legs. He had chased his ball out into the street and was hit by a car. And he spent several weeks recovering in the hospital. And the charge nurse, when she was ready to, to check the little boy out, she, she asked him, Now, the next time the ball rolls into the street... What will you do? Send my sister, he said. <laughs> this morning we come to an awful, awful story in the Bible. Not only does a man send his brother into harm's way, he leads him there and does him harm. But before we get to that, we need to set the context. So turn with me for our, our final time in this series to the, the book of Genesis, chapter 3. We will pick it up at verse 20. God has just pronounced his curse upon all of them for their disobedience. And now, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Remember that verse. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, God, speak to us through your word. This is important stuff, Lord. This is deep stuff and troubling in some ways for us. Please let us take it seriously. And because we do, please change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I talked this last week. It was a repeat of a conversation I've had over and over these last two years with a man who his family just lost their house. What made it even more painful for him is that this was a house that he built. This was their dream house, built with his own hands, and he lost it. God, after he created Adam and Eve, he built them a dream house, a garden, a paradise in which to live and love and enjoy life and enjoy his presence. But now their dream house is gone too. The decision to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit, as you have seen over these last weeks, 
has led to deadly alienation in every direction. Alienation with God, alienation with themselves, alienation with their spouse, with others, alienation with the soil even, and now alienation from the garden that was created for their pleasure. But even in the act of the discipline, did you see the grace of God? Did you see it? There was a grace moment even in this act of discipline. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed him. They were about to leave the comfort of the garden. They were going out into a cruel world where they needed to be covered and protected. And God demonstrates his love even for his disobedient children in providing for them. And so he kills animals and uses the skins to, to make a covering for them. And now we discover yet another deadly consequence of sin, don't we? The death of the animals, the death of God's creation in the animal world. So we continue to see the reality, sin kills. I want you to understand that. Say it with me, would you? Sin, we must take it seriously in a culture that winks at sin. Sin is deadly, it's poison, it's toxic. And if we don't believe that, we will never have good news to share. I want you to read verse 1 through 7 now as we continue in the story. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And now we turn to the story of the first created children, the first children in the creation story. And the beat goes on. Cain is a farmer. Abel the second born, a shepherd. And we are told in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord and so did Abel. We don't know why. We don't know if God asked them to or if his parents trained them to. But they bring offerings. Abel brings a portion of an animal. Cain brings a portion of his harvest. We are, re- we are told that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but he was displeased with Cain's offering. Now, why? What did you see in this story that would explain why God liked Abel's offering but disliked, disapproved Cain's? Is it because God is a carnivore? Is that, is that the deal? My daughter, Rachel, she is an avowed carnivore. And she has a friend who is, uh, Madeline is her name, who is a vegetarian. So Rachel gives her the tweak every time she can. And recently we were at a, a, a restaurant, a famous burger joint while we were on vacation. And Rachel saw a t-shirt that would be a perfect gift for Madeline, so she bought it. Here's what it said. Meat is murder. Tasty, tasty murder. (laughs) As you can see, my daughter got her gift of mercy from her dad. 
So is that the deal? Is God a carnivore who hates his Brussels sprouts? No. Then, then why was God displeased with this offering? Look at it more carefully. Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, we read. But Abel brought what? Fat portions of some of the firstborn of the flock. This is not about God liking animals more than he likes plants. It is about the heart of the giver. Cain offered God his leftovers. Abel offered God his first fruits, the very first and the very best of the product of his hand. Cain's offering was half-hearted, perhaps resentful. Abel's offering was one of genuine gratitude. Cain viewed his offering as an obligation of a demanding God. Abel viewed his offering as a privilege given to a gracious God. One of the things you discover pretty quickly when you pastor a church is the difference in your congregation between the Cain hearts and the Abel hearts. There are some who, like Abel, are grateful to God. They are generous. They give first fruits. They offer to the Lord the very first and the very best of everything that they have. Unfortunately, there are many others who are resentful about having to give anything, who do not give at all, or if they do give, they give their leftovers. Obviously, when the church has more Abel's than Cain's, then the church is blessed stewardship-wise. But you do see in this story that there's something much more about it than the bottom line. You will not find a story in the Bible that declares more clearly the spiritual nature of giving than this one. And it really is worth pausing, beloved, because the Scriptures take it right here. It's worth pausing to ask ourselves this. When it comes to the matter of my heart, when it comes to the matter of my giving of all that I have, including my wealth, do I have a Cain heart or an Abel heart? Do I give of the leftovers out of my resentment or obligation? Or do I give out of the first fruit, the tithe, the very best, because I'm so grateful to God for all that He has given to me? Every one of us has to struggle with that. You can see that it was an early issue. It continues to be an issue as part of the curse. Notice this. When Cain realizes that his leftover offering is not pleasing to God, he has a response. What was his response? He got angry. Very angry, as a matter of fact. He could have chosen a different response, but he chose to be angry. And you would not believe the letters that I've received over the years from people... Because I teach about what the Bible says about first fruits and tithing. They are some of the meanest letters. And they never come from generous people, by the way. They come from the stingy people who don't give anything. But they're mad that I reminded them that they should, I guess. Cain didn't have to respond with anger. He could have, he could have repented. He could have said, oh my God, I see now what I've done to you. I'm so sorry. Give me another shot. Let me go out and try it again because I can do better. But that is not Cain's response. He is angry and, we read, he pouts. That's what the downward cast face is. He pouts. It's just the petulance of a kid here. God calls him on it. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will it not be accepted? But listen, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. We discover very quickly that this, it's neither plants 
nor animals that are the issue here. Cain's crummy offering is the symptom of his crummy heart and his crummy attitude toward God. It is the symptom of sin eating away at him, the sin that was passed on genetically from his parents to himself. And God poses this powerful image to Cain about the deadly sin. He said, it is crouching at your door. Do you know that that was actually an ancient Babylonian phrase? It was used to describe what they believed to be a demon who, lies, who crouched in waiting outside of the door of a building. And when people came in or came out, the Babylonians believed it was the chance for the demon to pounce upon that person, to take possession of them. This, this is what God warns them, something that, that is frightening and they don't even know the danger before them. We recently had a home invasion in our neighborhood. How, remember reading about that? It was a home invasion and an assault. We are always pretty careful about locking up. But I guarantee you now, every morning when I leave, I double check to make sure the, the door is locked. And I look around in the bushes to make sure that there's no guy that's lying in wait, crouching, to do harm to my family. The next part of this same verse is also fascinating. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You know the last time that that same Hebrew word was used? In the last chapter, in the curse of Eve. It says, your desire will be for your husband. That sounds like it's nice, doesn't it? Oh, you will desire him. That's what, not what that Hebrew word means at all. Here's what it means. Part of the curse of Eve is the desire to use her beauty to seductively control and manipulate her man. That's what it means. Now, there are no women here, I'm sure who have ever used their beauty to seductively control or manipulate any man. But outside of this church, there are women who have done that. Part of the curse. And here we discover that sin seeks to do the same thing. The same language. To use its seductive nature to manipulate and to destroy. I've been telling you for weeks. I hope I've been telling you for years. Sin is deadly. You will find no clearer description, though, of what sin wants to do than right here. Sin crouches in hiding, waiting for a moment that you are vulnerable to pounce on you. We talked about work being worship. Sin is crouching right beside your desk, waiting to pounce on you there. For those of you who are students, sin is crouching at your school, crouching in your home, waiting to pounce on you. And we blithely go through life unaware of the spiritual danger that we face if we're not aware of that and ready to do battle. So how could we spot the sin that was crouching at Cain's door in this story? What was the evidence? What was the manifestation of it? His anger, right? His bitterness, his resentment. Was it toward God? Maybe, but it was also towards his darn little brother, wasn't it? What had Abel done to harm Cain? He did nothing. He simply did what was good before the Lord. He gave an offering that was heartfelt and pleasing. Cain didn't have to get mad. He could have chosen to be proud of his little brother. He could have bragged on his little brother for getting the praise of God. Stephanie and her friends chose to cheer for her teammates on the field, even though they want to be out there playing. That could have been their response, but no way. 
Cain has grown to hate his little brother. We don't see what has led up to it, but you know this isn't the first. This is the last of a series. This whole offering issue, it's just the latest in a long-running series of sibling rivalries. But at least God catches it in time, right? He, he pulls Cain aside. He said, all right now, son, here's a chance for you to turn things around. Before this behavior gets out of control, I'm going to give you a good talking to, and you're going to get things straightened out. It's going to be okay now. Keep going. He got a chance to turn things around, and that's exactly what Cain did, right? Let's take a look at the rest of the text. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I wonder this morning, are there any brothers who are both here this morning? Any brothers? Raise your hand. Anyone who's got a brother that's here with you? Brother and brother? Stand up. If your brother is here, stand up. Brother, brother? Any two brothers? Anybody? Right there. All right, two brothers, two brothers, right back there. I want to add, don't, just stay standing there for a second, brothers. What do you think of this story? It's, it's one of the most horrible moments in the Bible, isn't it? It's fratricide, a brother killing his brother. A brother slaying his brother. Even those of you who have a horrible relationship with your sibling... You might say, oh, I just want to kill you. But you don't mean it. You wouldn't really do that. The thought of taking your mother's child's life is inconceivable. Yes? Have a seat, brother. Thanks. With the exception of Judas, I don't think you'll find a more cold-hearted, calculated, treacherous act in the Scriptures than you do right here. Cain stands there listens to God's warning. Remember the warning? Sin is crouching at your very door, Cain. It desires to have you, but you must master it. He listens to that in the very next verse. He leads his unsuspecting brother out to the field and kills him dead. It's awful. I want you to notice the parallel between what happens here and what happened between Adam and Eve after they sinned. Remember, God came to them when they were hiding in the garden in their sin. He said, Adam, where are you? Remember? Because God didn't know where they were? No, He was calling them out into relationship, calling them out from their brokenness. Now He comes and asks another question. Where is your brother Abel? 
Did God not know where Abel was? Did not God not know what horrible thing Cain had done to him? Of course he did. And Cain responds, notice the lie and the defensiveness. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Just as Adam tried to hide behind fig leaves, this chip off the old block tries to hide behind deception and feigned indignation. Am I my brother's keeper? How should I know where the spoiled brat is? What is the answer to his own phony question? What is the answer to that question that Cain poses himself? Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer? Yes, of course you are. Especially as the big brother, that's exactly the role that you should play. And at the very least, you are not your brother's murderer. God continues, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God confronts Cain with his treachery and then he banishes him. But notice Cain's response. Does he repent? Is he sorry? Even remorseful for what he has done? Is there any of that there? It's just awful. The story up to now has been all about Cain. His offering, his anger, his resentment, his revenge for his humiliation. And it continues to be all about him. He doesn't throw himself on his face before the Lord and beg forgiveness for the treacherous thing he has done. Instead, he whines. My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. I don't know who was out there to kill him. Talk about creating a boogeyman. But there's not one word of repentance. Not one word of remorse. Even now he still doesn't get it. He whines because he will be a wanderer on the face of the earth, forgetting that his still warm brother lies beneath the earth by his cruel hand. Here's an easy test. The answer is not Jesus. I'm warning you. How do you spell sin? Spell it for me. S-I-N. Really, it should be spelled this way. Yes, because at the center of all sin is I. Remember when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit? Their eyes were open. Remember that? Immediately, what did their eyes turn to? God? Creation? No, themselves. They became immediately in their sin self-absorbed. All sin is self-absorbed. All sin is centered around I. What I want, what I feel, how I have been wronged, how I am the victim, how I will have my restitution, my vengeance, my day in court. A newspaper in London once ran this question for their reader's response. It went like this. What is wrong with the world? Think about that. How would you answer that question? What is wrong with the world? Two days later, they received what may be one of the most famous letters of the editor ever. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
What is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton, a famous Christian writer, had it exactly right, didn't he? And it is only when we realize how sin is I-centered that we can be delivered from it. Cain is the quintessential zombie. Every death, every alienation that we have discovered in the story so far, we find in self-centered Cain. Alienation from God, alienated from, alienation from himself, alienation from his brother, alienation from the ground, from the earth. And the most horrible thing of the whole story, he never gets it. He never sees it. He never sees how sin had crouched and sprung and taken him out. He just whines his way into an isolated life of self-pity. One of the things I hope to show by this sermon series is just how awful sin is. But we don't see sin that way. Oh, we see Cain's sin that way and Hitler's sin that way. And that man that stabbed that woman and stole her baby this last week, we see him as that kind of a sinner. But the sin we do, our little peccadilloes, that's not on the same scale, right? That's no big deal, that little lie to my parents, that little lie to my wife, that little lie to my husband. That stuff we did at the dance last weekend, my fudged expense report, a little porn on my computer. What harm does that do? That's not that serious, right? I saw a YouTube video recently. I will warn you. Some of you will find this disturbing. A family dog has killed a squirrel and the three-year-old daughter finds it. Take a look. All right. Hey, what is it you have there, Thea? A squirrel. It's dead. You have a dead squirrel, huh? Uh-huh. Whee! What are you going to do after this? I'm going to put it right here. Okay. How many of your moms are horrified that that little girl is playing with a diseased rodent? Or with the dad who is laughing and taking pictures instead of pulling it out of her hand? By the way, the mom shows up in the picture later on. It's not pretty. I wonder if you realize that that is exactly how we tend to treat our sin. We coddle it. We pet it. We protect it. We make excuses for it because, as a matter of fact, we like it. We like our sin and we just want to keep it close. What do you do with sin? If you're going to be set free, what do you do with sin? Do you know what Paul says must be done with sin. In Romans chapter 6, you know what Paul says you have to do? What do you imagine you have to do? Kill it! How do we do that? Do we pull out a shotgun and shoot it dead? How do we kill a sin that turns into a spiritual zombie and is so difficult to kill? We can't, but Jesus can. And that is the heart of the good news. This sin that lives in us 
The sin that crouches at the doors of our lives to pounce on us and destroy us. Jesus killed it on the cross. Amen? Sin tried to kill Jesus, but it failed. And everyone who trusts in Jesus is set free. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The terrible news of the Genesis story is that sin is real and destructive and ready to pounce on us. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, the curse of sin is broken. And we find him throughout this ancient story. Did you notice him at least three times? Alluded to, mentioned, prophesied. Three times we see something that reminds us of Jesus. First of all, in the curse of the serpent, remember? What is it promised that the son of evil do? He will crush the serpent's head. Then, when God provides those Skins. Did he just go buy them at the skin store? He shed blood to provide protection, a cover over them. Right there we see the image of the Christ who shed blood will provide protection under which we will be covered. And finally this. It is Jesus who is the good big brother. Jesus is the good big brother that comes looking for us when we are far from the Father to bring us to himself. Those last words of God to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you, but you must master it. You know what the the bad news about that is? You can't do it. Is it really about me mastering sin? Me behaving better? Me controlling my bad habits? Is that what it comes to? Me mastering sin? Is that how sin will be defeated? The answer is no. Only the master can master sin. Only the master can master sin. Only when we offer our sin to Jesus can we live the lives our master created us to live. So, what is the grip that sin has on you? That you've continued to pet and coddle and love and hold close to yourself. That you do not want let go. Jesus says, it will kill you. And I will master it if you let me. I will kill it if you let me. Is there anyone here today who needs to be set free from the power of sin and death? Jesus Christ can do that. Let us pray. These are hard words, Lord. They're not the feel-good stuff that we enjoy hearing. It's the bleak reminder of the truth that the curse still affects us today and that we tend to coddle and make excuses for to entertain sin instead of calling it out for what it is and condemning it and then begging you, risen Jesus, to kill it dead. There are people here right now who need to confess their sin to you, who need to turn over their sin, their lies, their brokenness to you, so that you might be the good brother and come and make them clean, make them whole, make them alive. 
right now in the silence of their hearts, in the cries of their heart, Lord, would you hear them? And Jesus, would you do what we cannot do? Would you master their sin by destroying it? Set us free. It is good news that the risen Christ is the sin-free one who can set us free. And we praise and honor and glorify your holy name, Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, master of masters, destroyer of sin.